0: Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, Discount Tire, and TorontoMotorsports.com. And you, thanks for all the awesome questions you send in every week. Courtesy of our pal Jerry Suddith, who puts together the questions for us, picks the items for each episode, tells me that we have 44-0 questions. Coming out of the Children's of Alabama Indy Grand Prix at Barber Motorsports Park. More than 2,000 words worth of questions. We will not get to all of them, dear friends, but I will get to as many as I can. Try and keep the show to something around an hour. So, with all that said, why don't we do one very important thing. Why? Because this is a couch episode. And when I'm recording on the couch we have one particular thing that signals the start of the week in IndyCar. The dumbest sound effect in the history of Earth. But yes, indeed, just finished the Racing Family Show. That was a blast. Co-host and I, Chris Wheeler, we love doing that. It's our live show every week on Twitter Spaces, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, Every Monday night during the racing season had who? Who? Well, we had Callum Lot, Kyle Kirkwood, kind of the third member of the show, our co-co-host. We had Ben Bretzman, race engineer for the race-winning number three Team Penske Chevrolet driven by Scott McLaughlin. And then about halfway through that show, we had the man himself, Scotty Mack, join in. Good on him. He, I believe, had consumed a six-pack of beer and a pizza by that point. So we had uh, <laughs> prime-grade McLaughlin. So going to put that up here shortly as well. Hopefully you will uh, get a chance to listen to that along with this. But yeah, with our little meow, 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 that signals it is time to get rolling with the show here. So who did Jerry choose first? Well, his predecessor. In Assembly of Questions, our pal Jim Kaiser got to know Jim a couple years ago. He and uh, the family, much love for them. And Jim originally joined in the show by sending in Haiku, and he has done that yet again. So, uh, we open the show with Jim, who says, Running all-out looks, way more fun than Fuel Save Mode, worked for Scotty Mac. Indeed. This was all about strategy on Sunday. Lots of your questions delved into that aspect. But before we get there, why don't we start off with uh, Ricky Zagata. How you doing, Ricky? And uh, also, I think Chris Wright, you sent in similar question. Both asking, is Romain Groschon the Reggie Miller of IndyCar? Honestly, I love both, and I want Rogro to win so bad. Yeah, uh, the, the theme, one I happened to write about this morning about Romain Grosjean's bridesmaid Uh He is the current leader among IndyCar drivers with five second-place results without a win. Friend Scott Richards put together some some great stats on that, so was able to use that in the story this morning on Racer, but yeah. Uh, Romain would be a Five-time IndyCar winner, if he was able to find an extra 10.2 seconds across those five runner-up finishes. Um, I don't think he's turning into the Reggie Miller. Uh, I think if you look throughout his Formula One career, not a guy who did a lot of dominating runs. But his junior Formula career, we certainly saw some real badass level of output from Romain. If anything, I think we're seeing him rediscover that aspect of himself. Not the best version of Romain when he drove for the Lotus Formula One team, but just this much younger, freer, no weight on his shoulders guy, plus... Him being really smart and using his age to his benefit and not making crazy lunges here or there and doing risky things that maybe might get him a win, but also come with extraordinary odds not in his favor. So I have no doubt the guy's going to win once, if not twice, maybe even three times this year. Uh, I think we're just seeing him at a really great place in his life where he's happy. The car is obviously working wonderfully for him and his teammates. And Andretti Autosports found some great stuff. That's another question uh, coming up here in a little bit. Everything's working super well for him. And could he have tried some crazy things to get by Kyle Kirkwood at Long Beach to maybe get the win? Maybe. But Could have also taken the two of them out and been in a bad place in the championship. We know that uh, he was leading and looking like he could have won at St. Pete. Contact with McLaughlin. I don't put that on him. I don't really put that too heavily on Scotty either. But regardless, I think what we're seeing here, guys, is a driver who knows he's got something special. And although this Sunday certainly was frustrating for him, Strategy not playing out the way he had hoped. Caution certainly being a factor in that as well. What a what a great position to be in. <laughs> I am the owner of many second-place finishes. He's currently fifth in the championship. I think like 15 points out of first. And he's frustrated that he hasn't won yet because he's come so close. That... <laughs> Think about Jack Harvey. Think about Simon Paginot. Think about Graham Rahal. Think about the majority of drivers in the series who have won races or been contenders at some point or know that they can be so much more than they currently are able to deliver. They would dream of having his problem of being a bridesmaid right now over and over and over again. So No doubt that for him, this is getting old. But it's going to happen, without a doubt. Uh, He and the team are really, really executing at a high level. It's going to happen. And I think once he wins, not saying that's going to unlock anything. The guy could already be a two-time winner this year. Just think that's going to be if it's any little anything, any little distraction, any little voice in his head, I think that's going to be something that just goes silent when he gets that first win. And there's no way it is his only one of the year or his career once that happens. Quietude38, you ask, did Groshaw actually use up all of his push to pass? Was there a technical problem? Um... I'm waiting to get the answer from Honda asked uh, earlier today and haven't heard back. Keep in mind that you know a lot of folks traveling right after the race and need to uh, get stuck in. Sometimes it can be uh, Tuesday morning before full data review is done. But I know that, at least speaking with uh, our friends Scotty McLaughlin and Ben Bretzman, they seem to think uh, something you mentioned here about um, did he just go nuts on the button during in-and-out laps? And that was one thought they had, that Romas seemed to wonder where his push-to-pass went all of a sudden, um, being a surprise that there was almost nothing left right at the time that he would have needed it to defend. He, groschamp seemed to think that there might have been a glitch. I don't know if there was a glitch, But I can tell you that, yeah, there is a belief that he might have been relying on it very heavily. And, yeah, you get 200 seconds, but if you want to go animal on it, you can burn up a bunch uh, in one lap or two and be sitting there with not a ton left. So, don't have the answer yet, but, yeah, uh, more than a couple of folks wondering if it went away because he was hitting the good old button there for push to pass like it was... The party horn of horsepower. Uh, Let's see, where do we go next? Andrew Miller, great question. You say the significance of the lone yellow flag really wasn't noted until we heard those post-race interviews. Said, I thought NBC did a great job setting up the two strategy options, that being either two-stop or three-stop, but seemed to miss how critical those yellow laps were. You say, were the three stoppers depending on at least one yellow, or was it more subtle than that? You know, there's another outlier here, which I I picked up on a little bit early in the race, but not enough. And I don't know if everyone else picked it up as well. This is something that uh, Scotty and Ben confirmed during the Racing Family show tonight, and that was... They really did go animal on that opening stint, knowing that they were on a three-stopper right away. There was one outlier, Andrew, during this race, when it comes to not strategy, but what was done within that strategy, and that was McLaughlin. Um, He made up so much speed, lap, gap, everything... Since he was on the maximum attack three-stop plan from the outset and really had no one impeding his progress, that being a little bit different than, say, a Will Power or even Newgarden, who, uh, you know, he felt he had some some mechanical issues there from that first lap contact with Rosenquist. But there weren't a ton of folks who started the race on a three-stop strategy. Of the vast majority who did, few of them had free-ish open track to make that maximum attack pay off in just an outrageous way, right? Uh, Two stoppers, by comparison, they were all saving fuel right away, running one to two seconds per lap slower, some even slower than that all intentionally, all to save fuel, uh, to be able to make uh, a two-stop strategy work under the assumption there would be no caution. And so you had this thing where depending on where you started, where you got to on the first lap, and whether you were stuck in a cluster of cars or not, you could have been a three-stop driver, Andrew, who was on burn it all up, tear it all up, you're not saving tires, you're not saving fuel, you're just killing every lap like you're in qualifying. But in and around a cluster of cars who were intentionally going slower, not really too open to trying to make your life easy because they know that, hey, if we just let the three-stoppers fly by us, well, this could bite us in the behind later. You had the majority of the three-stop drivers just unable to maximize that strategy to open the race, McLaughlin was the one outlier, and so we saw pretty quickly like hey whoa, <laughs> this guy's like right up with Grosjean." um the what what uh, so we get through another stop and such, and again we're just seeing the crazy brilliance of what Scotty was able to do in that opening stint, the next stint as well, then we have the timing of that caution. Uh, Stingray Rob has a propulsion issue. You think about where the two-stoppers were in a 90-lap race. They're needing to stop twice, so it might be one lap before, one lap after, but in general, they're looking to get to lap 30, then to lap 60 or so. Again, plus or minus a lap or two. But their plans are pretty straightforward. You think of the three-stoppers, they've got a little bit more flexibility, right? Is it lap 24-ish, 25-ish, then lap who knows, whatever. Maybe they go to lap 20 uh And then the next stop, they push to lap 45, 42, whatever they want. Go however long they need to there. And then, again, uh, at some point, one more time, uh, who knows? Again, pick and choose based on what they wanted to do. But lap 70, maybe, 65, 73, whatever. Enough options here where they're not really worried about burning down their fuel tank to the last drop. They have the ability to go crazy crazy hard and based on tire life and how well the tires are holding up under their maximum attack plus <clears throat> what they're dealing with in terms of traffic or folks maybe impeding their ability to go flat out, had some wiggle room. And so this is where this lap 38 issue for Stingray Rob comes into a pretty interesting place. And so you had a lot of folks on the, th- I think, yeah, I'll have to go back and look, but you had a decent number of folks on that three-stop plan in a place on track where learned of Stingray Rob pulling off. Wasn't exactly in a, in a dangerous place, but uh, we knew that they would be going yellow to get them out of, uh, get them off the track, and so we had a bunch of the three-stoppers fire right into the pits, and although it might have been a wee bit earlier than they wanted, um, pretty interesting timing for them to be able to do that. And so, how's this? Depending on who you speak with, and this is a part that I do find funny, Andrew, and Riley, you've got a question about throwing the yellow that I'll get to in just a sec. Speak with Groschon, and he will tell you that without the caution... He absolutely had the field covered. Race was his, period, end of question. Um, McLaughlin will kind of sort of tell you the same thing. So both things can't be true, but you have the person on the two-stopper who felt that the timing of the caution and the ability for the three-stoppers to dive in and get uh, get fresh... Tires, or newer tires at least, and fuel and whatnot, played to their advantage. And I don't disagree that it certainly, the timing was was certainly not a bad thing for them. Um, I know I've heard from a number of two-stoppers who just weren't happy with the pits being left open um, to make sure that the three-stoppers who pitted were not disadvantaged. Um, But yeah, I can tell you that the driver who's on pole and led the majority of the race on a two stop felt that without the caution, they just were going to own the race and win it. And I can also tell you that the folks who did win it on a three stopper felt that they didn't need the yellow and didn't appreciate anybody suggesting that it played a factor in their ability to overcome Groschon. So, again, uh, yeah. Um, I can tell you this, uh, Without that yellow, I think we would have seen one aspect of the race maybe change, Andrew, uh, that I don't know if it was considered enough, and that was what we saw going on for sure were those two stoppers intentionally slowing things down. And, yeah, Alex Pelot pushed really hard in the opening couple of laps, trying to see if he could get by Groschonk couldn't and that's when they said okay great we're going into big fuel saving mode and you just had a bunch of folks marching at a slower pace by intent um, had things played out without a caution I think we would have seen that same exact thing in a more concerted effort among the two stoppers why would that have any bearing on things well again we saw how for the majority of the two, three stoppers Other than McLaughlin, uh, that concerted slow-it-down effort by the two-stoppers certainly made their lives a little harder and made it more of a challenge for them to extract that maximum speed. I think we would have seen the same thing happen after the uh, two-stoppers completed their final stop. I mean, definitely more hardcore in the middle stint, uh, which ended up being right around where Uh, we had the caution, and they were able to get some laps behind, uh, you know, pace car and do some fuel saving there that helped. But I just, I got to believe we would have seen something similar to that a little bit later in the race, uh, which would have just made life harder for the three-stoppers to run as freely and as hard as they did and pick up as much, uh, pick up as many positions as they did. So, yeah, it's speculation, but... Probably what we would have seen, who knows if that would have played out in McLaughlin's favor, but man, they were just on a different planet, so um, impressive, impressive stuff, and also, I mean, what, not too dissimilar from the Texas race, right? I mean, Groschon and Pato Ward got a lot in common here, where, boy, they seem to own things for a long time and run away and hide, and then, Boom! Team Penske has a, a bit of a late-race surprise, completely turns the table, and, yeah, the person who led most of it and felt like they had the hot ticket ended up leaving feeling very demoralized. So, yeah. Uh, hey, Riley, you got a question here. You say, I don't understand the ruling of waiting to throw a yellow flag. You say, if people get botched strategically by an untimely yellow, well, that's a reality, and you just take it. Um, you say the... Uh, the Stingray Robmobile remained in an quote, unsafe position the whole time. Why force the varying strategies to play out? I hear you on that one, and I don't totally disagree. Here's what IndyCar has said, and they did stick by it. They basically said if car is not in a truly dangerous position. And we're in a place where, you know, pit stop cycle might be happening or folks can, a number of folks try and get in uh, to take advantage of that. Well, we're not going to penalize them. Um, that's what they said they would do and they've done that. Groshaw, of course, was not pleased with their decision to do that. They've done that before and we've seen them do that before for sure and again it's all dependent upon the situation on track you know if someone's parked sideways on the racing circuit yeah you're going yellow immediately and if that ends up harming anybody because they were in the pits on the way to the pits you know whatever it is well you know the the safety or lack of safety in the moment that overrides everything else Here, Stingray's parked on the side of the road, not on the road, but in the grass. So it's on a straightaway where, yeah, drivers might start to line up over on drivers right where he was to uh, get ready for the fast sweeping complex that's coming up. But I could see why they would wait 10, 15, however many seconds it was, basically uh, to let those who are going to dive in or who had already jumped in, Uh, get their service, and get rolling, and then throw the yellow. So, yeah. Um, Here's the thing. There's no way everybody leaves happy. (laughs) Okay? You close the pits immediately, um, and, yeah, I'm sure you get some three-stoppers who are screaming mad and say, by doing that, you ruined my race. And then you have it in this situation where the guy leading on a two-stopper says, you screwed my race. I don't know. Um, Did anybody at that exact moment among the two-stoppers just go nuclear at IndyCar? Did we hear a bunch of screaming over the radio from two-stoppers saying, you just destroyed us with that move? If so, I didn't hear about it. So... I'm not a super fan of the after the race, after not getting the win, then doing, the, oh, you guys, you know, took it from me. And I'm not saying Grosjean was pushing things to that level. He absolutely wasn't. Just in a general sense, I get it. Close it, don't close it, you're going to affect somebody somehow. Um, the decision to shut it down right away would have certainly led to comments saying, why are you doing that? You're screwing people's races. And you leave it open and you get comments saying, well, you should close it because you screwed some people's races. So as for why, I think it's to not intentionally screw people's races, Riley, but it might be a bit of an unanswer, but that's what they've decided to do. And it seems like they're being consistent Uh, with doing what they said they would do. Uh, Let's go to The Spannerer, who asks, just wondering if the drop-off on the alternates was the expected amount from Firestone. You say the New Guard-McLaughlin-Rossi strategy didn't seem to work from a speed standpoint. Um, of you in that first stint, were they planning to go longer if the tires allowed, or was it all about getting onto the reds and reeling off fast laps? Um, Yeah, I mean... McLaughlin among those you mentioned was a fricking rocket, uh, on the primaries to open the race. That was the, the rare choice, but that was the, uh, the choice among the three stoppers and yeah, definitely getting on to the alternates is where they're going to make even more speed. So yeah, uh, I do think for sure that there was an expected higher level of drop off for the alternates than we saw on some cars also got to bear in mind that for the two stoppers on starting on the alternates they did indeed have to go <coughs> much longer on them than those on the uh, the three stop plan cuz again they're not stretching things nearly as far, or quite as far so I think that's why we saw, like Colton Herter, for example, appeared to burn off its front tires um, again. Um, yeah, I mean, there there's just some different realities here. So if you think of those who had to go longer, you know, they were complaining more and definitely losing more speed at the end of that first stint. And those who were able to uh, just maximum attack on the primaries then jump on to alternates and go maximum attack again. Neither case required stretching them beyond, you know, or into a territory where they were just dead for many, many, many laps. Let's go to Leonard Farrell. How are you doing, Leonard? Or is it Farrell? I don't know. It's been quite a turnaround for the Andretti Garage, except what's going on with Herda? Yeah need to uh, need to ring the lad and ask that very question. Um, I don't know if it's a case of what's going on, meaning there's a problem. F- finishing up Wednesday's racer mailbag um, earlier this afternoon, and this exact question was raised as well, Leonard. And my hypothesis, which could be spot on or spot off. That's a phrase folks need to use, by the way. You are spot off. Um, I'm wondering this. We have seen Colton Herter come in to Andretti Autosport and from day one establish himself as the toppest of top dogs. Uh, Our friend Ryan Hunter Ray, on average, not able to match his pace. Uh, Alexander Rossi, in particular, really uh, not able to match his pace. Had a situation where, last year, Rossi found more in himself, found more in the car, and was a greater challenge to him than he's ever been. Um, You look at where they finished in the championship, of course, both had adversity, but both won a single race apiece, but... Uh, For the first time, Rossi finished ahead of Colton in the championship. It was only one position, uh, but they were were way closer than we had seen them, uh, they've ever been. This is the first time where Colton has a real hardcore threat coming at him from more than one direction. So last year... Roshaw being new to the team. We know that Roma just did not have a great year overall, but there were times where he was not only really fast, but the fastest Andrade Autosport driver. There's not too many instances, man, where <laughs> uh, anyone in that team has been faster than Colton Herta. It's happened a couple times, don't get me wrong, but, uh, on a more consistent basis, it has been Colton heard a P1 and then pick whomever it is who's been P2 on the speed and, and results depth chart. Last year, we saw Groschon start to push in on that a little bit at times, but not consistently. Rossi was certainly leveling up and running with if not running ahead of, of her to a little bit. And so last year, you know, was was a down year for Colton as well. And so what have we had this year? We have the strongest, absolute strongest opposition Colton has ever faced within his team. So coming in, season previews, all that kind of stuff, I wrote, I'm guessing others wrote as well. Colton's going to have to lead the team. He's very young, but he's going to have to step up. You know, has only got two years of experience, never won a race. Kirkwood's got one year of experience, and it didn't go super well. Devlin, of course, coming back for a sophomore season. You know, uh, definitely not same league as his teammates, but this is going to be a lot on Colton's shoulders to lead And we would expect Grosjean to get better and Kirkwood to learn from him. But clearly defined number one. And what has happened? Romain Grosjean. Romain Grosjean has happened. Pole position at the opening race. uh, Leads a lot of it. Is just a threat to win, for sure. And if, minus the contact, you know, I think it's safe to say. Would have been on the podium, for sure. Again, if not, a winner. Um, Wasn't that... Definitely in a in a winning space, Norsey and Dreddy team as a whole, if I remember correctly, at Texas. But they were competitive and Romain was pushing hard and moving towards the front. Spun and crashed, got it. So, you know, that's on him. But get to Long Beach, the guy's fierce and qualifying, finishes second behind Kirkwood, on the pole again at Barber and finishes second there. I'm just saying Groshaw's leveled up more than anyone at Andretti Autosport than I can recall in just about forever, if we're talking from a year-to-year basis. Enough so that he is now the fastest driver there and the most consistent. A little bit of a caveat, uh, every Andretti driver has had at least one terrible race out of the four held so far. Uh, Romain's first two, again, two crashes, um, not great at all. Kirkwood, obviously, big crash first race, same for Colton um, you know uh, there, there's there been a definite amount of adversity this year at Andretti Autosport but here's the main thing that stands out just to close you got Groshaw who's just on a different level we've never, I mean except for that one year with Lotus in F1 we've never seen him at this kind of place and it's really impressive he's leading the team in performance. <laughs> not potential, but actual performance. He's leading the team in the championship, right? Kirkwood, we expected him to be good, but didn't know how good, if we'd see the close to the best version of him early in the season or not. I didn't expect that. I'm thinking by June, we're going to see him really cozy and, and delivering uh, You know, 99% or whatever. Totally wrong. Kids quick right out of the gate and testing. Super quick at St. Pete. Uh, obviously, Texas didn't exactly go to plan there with a pit lane contact and then a mechanical issue after that. But Long Beach just dominated, owned the place. And did anybody have Kyle Kirkwood as the driver to win Andretti's first race of the season? I mean other than him and maybe his his family no but here we are uh, with Groshaw being the fastest of the four here we are with Kirkwood being a rocket as well getting their first win i've never seen Colton challenged like this as like what we've seen here in the first four rounds so has he lost speed of course not is any less capable of winning races or vying for a championship? Of course not. Got the same crew chief, same race engineer, all the things that have made him so successful. But now he's not exactly the one and only golden child within the team. I mean, he's got a a golden, older, much older brother in Groschon, and he's got a older, younger brother, even though he's a little bit older, Kirkwood. Um has Colton taken a step back or has he for the first time had two teammates step up to the point to where they're either level or slightly ahead? Uh, I I wonder if that's the case here, Leonard. Tied to that, how's he going to respond? Right? This is the first time he's had this happen. What do you do? Do you crumble? Do you complain? Do you what do you do? Uh, this is something I've never seen him have to deal with, so I can only hope that he handles this well and finds another level in himself. What we haven't seen, which has just been strange, we haven't seen the th- scary Colton Hurta. Like That guy, he's again still a child, but this guy terrorized IndyCar the first couple of years coming up on the one year anniversary of his last win which is mind-boggling so i need to just call and ask and get a feel i know fortunes haven't always gone his way but when things have been fine when there've been when there's been no adversity to point towards um we've seen those two teammates of his uh, either being the lead dogs there, or being pretty close, or if Colton is ahead of them, it's by a tiny amount. Um, never seen this before with him at Auto Sports. so got to dig a little deeper because it's a fascinating plot early in the season. Uh, Damien, you say on Sunday IndyCar had 175 passes, F1 had 13. Can we just take a moment to reflect that even an average IndyCar race is still a wonderful thing to watch. We can of course we can um i I might uh, it's hard for me to remember exactly where I started watching or you know knowing of IndyCar or Formula One first, but they were very similar timelines, so I can't say that I've loved one more or longer than the other, but I've loved both forever. I mean, we're talking like back to the 1970s. So uh, I might not cover Formula One for a living, but please don't mistake that for it not being a massive part of the vast majority of my life. Um, like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I say this just with a bit of sorrow I I haven't watched, uh, other than the first F1 race this year, I haven't watched any others because I haven't really had the motivation to. Uh, motivation meaning uh, unless something bizarre happens, I know the result of the race before it starts. And that's not new to F1, right? I mean, F1's thing is streakiness, right? even though they're just in the second year of a new formula. Like, eh, I don't want to sound like old guy here, but I've been through a lot of formulas in F1. (laughs) Turbo, non-turbo, high downforce, low downforce, atmospheric, uh, mixed atmospheric and turbo, uh, groove tires, non-groove tires, active suspension, non-active like just all kinds of stuff. And inevitably... After that first year, maybe there'll be some change. But yeah, Um, this is just kind of sort of F1's thing. The rarities are the years where you go, there's three different teams. And I guess different is kind of a redundancy here. But three teams routinely fighting for victories and we don't know which one's going to win the championship. Normally, it's one team that dominates, or it's two teams fighting over the title, but when you have 10 teams, or 11 or 12 or more back in the day, but if you have so few possibilities for who might win, eh, that limits my interest in any form of racing, Uh, but Formula One certainly does that a lot. So this isn't me complaining about F1. I love it. Still love it, etc, etc. But unless something bizarre happens, Red Bull is just going to win all the time. And that's just what it is. It doesn't interest me. Uh, I'm not a particular fan of either of Red Bull's drivers, so there's no pull on the heartstrings to want to watch either there. If I knew that a Mercedes or a McLaren or a whomever else would be legitimately fighting back and forth and trading wins. And there's a dramatic story to follow here. Where are things going to end up in December, January, or whenever their 900 race season ends? I'd be all in. That would be worth tracking. But you know uh yeah i got, I got there's nothing pulling me into want to watch and that makes me sad because here we are in year 2 of this new formula that is supposed to make passing easier and this and level the playing field and you go well, you level the playing field and red bull <laughs> uh made it uneven immediately and there's nothing critical in that statement. It's one of the beauties of F1. Uh, bring your ideas, and may the best idea win. And theirs is just so much better than everyone else's. Um, that was last year. Obviously, Ferrari put up a good fight, but yeah, it was them and pretty much them alone. This year, it's just—it's not even. Yeah, not even close. the The weird thing, though, the 1988 Formula One season one of my all-time favorites. <laughs> uh 15 of 16 races were won by McLaren. Uh if I remember the tally, Ayrton Senna uh who we remember today, who was was my all-time hero, still is, my all-time favorite race car driver. Um remember correctly, Senna won 8 races, Alain Prost won 7. Um they would have gone 16 for 16, perfect. Uh, if not for just one little air at the Monza Grand Prix. But I remember watching that 1988 championship just enraptured the entire time. How is that possible when I'm saying I am bored to death with things right now where (laughs) statistically, like no one's ever going to come close to that 88 season where one team took, again, 15 out of 16 wins, There was a hell of a fight, an epic knockdown, drag-out fight, dirty at times, between Senna and Prost. And so, yeah, we knew who was going to win every race in terms of the manufacturer, the constructor. We did not know which driver was going to win, but we did know that, oh my goodness, it was going to be... Whatever drama you think Drive to Survive might uncover or manufacture, uh yeah, it happened organically in nineteen eighty eight and it was times a thousand. So that's how I still have all of all sixteen races on VHS video cassette, crazy as it is. And yeah, it's just such a different different thing. So I'm with you, Damien. Uh IndyCar four races. Three different teams have won. Uh, We've had, uh, what, three different pole sitters so far. Uh, We've had split here. We've got two engine suppliers. It's 50-50 so far this year. Um, It's something where we don't know who's going to win every race. And uh, even though Penske's taken half the races so far, uh, I got to say, Scotty McLaughlin flexing as he did, right? Uh, I love Joseph Newgarden. I think the guy has a couple more championships in him. I also think this McLaughlin guy, like if he isn't the greatest story in IndyCar in the past 20 years, I don't know who is. Uh, this guy is not just come here and adapting and doing well. This guy's knocking off... <laughs> Uh, teammates who have a combined four championships. Uh, Four championships since 2012. Uh, I'm sorry, since 2014. Uh, He's knocking these guys off and making it look not too crazy hard. And then I think about how much experience he has, and it makes just no sense at all. So, yeah, I love the fact that even among the reigning champions, Damian, where you'd say, boy, they sure kicked everybody's butt last year. They they did. But even within them, uh, the guy with the least amount of experience in IndyCar and with the drastic shortage of open-wheel experience compared to everybody has leveled up like Rochon in a way where you go, yeah, if McLaughlin beats Newgarden in a head-to-head race or Power or whomever else, There's no reason to be surprised at all. And this is coming from a guy who spent his entire life racing touring cars. So, yeah. Uh, The 175 passes were cool, but just the overall premise of what we have in IndyCar, I'd say pretty darn cool as well. You know what else is cool? All right, just feeling a little ridiculous. Uh, Andrew Miller, you mentioned... uh, Maybe a thing that wasn't commented upon enough on Sunday was lack of back markers getting in the way. And you mention uh, the race website did something of the F1 break, uh, crowing that F1s eliminated the back marker class. Uh, you say, but it's quite clear the same thing has happened in in IndyCar too. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, Barber didn't necessarily expose that too heavily, but keep in mind that the bottom third of the field was seemingly all wiped out on lap one at St. Pete, so that wasn't an issue put on display. Texas, not so much of an issue that we're going to see played out there. Long Beach, similar, right? The the leaders were kind of you know, on a planet of their own. Here, we didn't see it so much, but we're going to see it. Okay, we we just haven't seen it yet is what I would say. There's a significant difference in the younger newer rookie crop this year than we've had for a little while. Um, you know, Stingray Rob and the Dale Coin team last weekend, for example, were nowhere. I mean, David Malukas as well, just they were nowhere. And yet, Um, they weren't necessarily in the way so much. Stingray obviously was out of the race early. Benjamin Peterson, you know, similar thing. Kid who's just short on mileage, not hyper, hyper crazy competitive. He's also not going to put up a huge fight uh, if he sees uh, leaders coming, is alerted that uh, there are faster cars coming. You know, if the kid's running 12th on merit and he's got, you know, pick whomever behind him that's normally running near towards the top 10, I'd expect him to fight like heck. But if he's running 23rd, uh, he's going to be alerted quickly. Hey, watch out. Move over. Um, so the, I'd say maybe the, the main thing here is even the, the smaller teams are pretty darn good these days. Um we just we do have a, a smallish cluster of those who are not able to keep up at the same pace. We've also seen here to open the season, you know, Connor Daly's just had a brutal brutal year. Usually ends up towards the back. Same with Jack Harvey. Centino Ferrucci had a nice you know a, a amazing drive at Long Beach, but you know he hasn't had a lot of uh, a lot of time in the sun towards the front. Pagino, similar things. Elio, similar. Augustine, right? Last couple of races have been a little bit of a, you know, return to earth. Um I already mentioned Stingray and Peterson. Devlin DeFrancesco, unfortunately, just has had a, a unrelentingly bad uh, year so far. Even so, none of them are, are farting around going super slow, but I, I would just say, Don't be surprised if we get to the Indy Grand Prix, we get to Detroit, uh, we get to Mid-Ohio, Toronto, etc., and you start hearing some comments from some of the veterans, whether it's practice, trying to get in their qualifying simulation runs, or in the race, some of the names that I just mentioned uh, being mentioned before or after curse words. So, uh, yeah. I fear it's probably happening, but if it doesn't, please send a note in saying, Pruitt, uh, you're an idiot, and uh, everything I mentioned right after Barbara was right, and you're 100% wrong. Um, Fred Melky, we're going to start winding down here pretty quickly, by the way, but uh, Fred, why don't we go with your question here, and you say, Who can R.C. Enerson bump from the field? I love this question, Fred. Uh, Who are the drivers at risk of not making the race? Does he have a legitimate chance of making the field? Might be reading a story that I have put together on this very topic by the time you're listening to this. Um, Probably spent 45 minutes or so on the phone today with the good man who is John Bruner who runs the Able Motorsports team, IndyCar veteran, um, Just really, everybody loves John, first of all, and also just the most solid of guys. So beyond everybody loving him as a person, uh, also just really good at his job. So um, it was so awesome to learn today about all the measures they have taken to bring the former Top Gun Racing entered chassis at Indy and what was that, 21 for RC Um, up to full and proper Speedway specification. And so I'll save all of that, the the finer stuff for the story uh, with the interview with John. But they have really done what you would hope they would do to give RC the best possible chance of making the field. The downside... They were not able to do the Indy Open test. Um, Decent amount of new parts, pieces, and you name it, from uh, Chevy. Meant for 2023 that, keeping in mind that the last time the car ran was what, 22 was it? 21, I forget. But it's been a little while since the car was used. And so, decent amount of parts and pieces. Even just updated bits from Delara that need to go on the car. Uh, Also, I don't know if uh, Team Chevy had all the extra staff required to look after uh, the 34th entry there for the open test. So that didn't happen, so that is definitely a bummer for them. But they have a really good engineer for the car. R.C. Enerson is highly talented, so that to me is uh, something in their favor. And so I have much higher hopes for them. Fred than I did prior to learning about all the uh, the measures that John and the team have gone to to give RC a really good car um, so that's the, the qualifying part up front uh, this is not the oh boy not only did you miss the test but the car is also a bit of a dog type thing like it was uh, the first time RC tried to qualify with you know an enthusiastic squad, but yeah. Um, yeah. Who might they bump? Well, be smart to look at how the open tests ended up. Obviously, Catherine Legg, they uh, had their, more than their fair share of problems, uh, and so she didn't get much time and certainly was unable to show much speed. I know Benjamin Peterson as well. There wasn't uh, a ton of crazy speed to show there. The Foyt team, though, tends to be pretty darn good at the speedway. Michael Cannon, their technical director, uh, two pole positions at Indy to his name the last two years was Scott Dixon. So you would think the Foyt team would be in pretty good shape in terms of making the field, even with a rookie. RLL team gotta believe they'll be uh, they'll find more speed. Uh, they were slowish for sure there. So I guess the answer is nobody jumps out right now as oh that's the te- the entry the team uh, the specific driver that RC can knock out of the field. And it, trust me, if I th- if there was one that stood out to me, I'd tell you right now. I'd say yep, that's the one. I already mentioned, Cat and uh, the RLL team. You know, assuming they have no more problems and she can get in all the laps necessary to feel comfortable in the car and right, not have any real setbacks there. Uh, I think you know she'll be okay. But the RLL team does scare me a little bit. Um, where I think the the answer is going to come from is who crashes and when. There's always somebody that crashes, right during practice, and depending on the team, depending on whether they have a spare car that has, you know, a proper body fit on it and is aerodynamically pure and and super quick and not all of a sudden missing one and a half miles an hour than the car they just crashed. That's where we tend to see the jeopardy come in, and so you know, Hunko's Hollinger, right? You go, well, they weren't crazy, crazy faster in the test, but they weren't bad. But, you know, Augustine's a super rookie, so is is he going to be the guy? Eh, Again, I think the team's going to be okay and get both of their drivers in. But you can't avoid the who crashes and when. And if it's a big team, I'm not worried, right? It'll set them back, but if uh, a Penske, Ganassi, Andretti, whatever driver crashes, not worried. Uh, they're going to have a, a really good spare car. It's going to be body-fitted. It's going to be quick. Uh, maybe not as perfect as the one that got crashed, but they're fine. Is it a midfield team, though? One of the smaller teams. Uh, what happens there? Does a coin driver crash And they not only lose a day of running while putting together the new car, but, you know, it happens late enough where, boy, uh, they're just not going to have enough time. Is it the dreaded crash mid to late Thursday in a big crash? And it's a medium to smaller team that doesn't have a pretty much fully prepped spare car, just plug the motor in and go type deal. And all of a sudden you're now losing Friday and you don't get your Fast Friday running on high boost and get to do all the preparatory things directly for qualifying. Are you going out during the practice session Saturday morning on high boost for the first time having to make up for losing a whole day and, you know, it's that thing that has been going. Assuming it isn't Able Motorsports in RC, Uh, That is the one crashing and losing. But assuming they get to run the whole time and everything goes well, yeah, sadly, we're having to worry about who it is that hits the wall, how bad the damage is, and where it happens. If it's Tuesday afternoon, not the end of the world, should be able to recover. If it's late Wednesday, mid to late Thursday, yeah, uh, especially Thursday, so Whomever your favorite driver happens to be, if they're in a medium to small-sized team, and you believe in a higher power, um, do your praying uh, Wednesday night before you go to bed and also uh, Thursday morning when you wake up. Because if they chuck the thing into the wall at the wrong time, um, they could be the ones that Unbelievably R. C. Enerson and the Able Motorsports team send a packing. Alright, I'm gonna give you one more. <laughs> and we are getting right close to our one hour ish self imposed limit. So let me fire through a couple very quickly and then we will say farewell. Uh Cy Harrison, how you doing, Cy? P, now that we're four races into the season, want to know who's impressed you the most uh, compared to what you originally expected from them. Uh, on the other side, who has underperformed? be diving through a lot of this, side. I hope here in the next day or two, in a, uh, hey, 25% of the season's over, here's some observations on things like that and more. Uh, I mentioned Groschon, and so I'm going to stick with him. He's the biggest, wow, you are, <laughs> you are the... Most influential, impactful driver so far of this season. Realize he's not leading the championship. Realize he doesn't won a race. But this guy is where seemingly almost every race's story has gone through. Texas being the only one of the four, that wasn't exactly the case. But yeah, so it's him. Uh, we've already spoken about Colton being one of the surprises in the opposite direction. Uh, other things, am I surprised that Aaron McLaren has yet to win a race after four races? I am. Um, would have thought Pato would have had at least one. Uh, am I thinking Rossi is is doing well, but did I expect him to maybe be a little bit more of a threat uh, by round three, round four? Yeah. Um no disappointment there, just thought there would be a little bit more by now, but again, gotta be a little bit patient. Um Chip Ganassi racing. Obviously Marcus Erickson was in a prime position to uh to pick up the win at St. Pete. The fact that we haven't seen an Alex Pelot win, um mildly surprising. Last year being very dramatic for him, uh, took until the last race for him to get that win, and it was just a devastating-type win, right? Uh, of those we maybe only see once or twice a year. He's been very good, obviously, to start the season. You know, he's in a great championship position, but uh, between himself, Scott Dixon... Uh, I'm a little bit surprised that Ganassi has not been more threatening-ish threatening than they have been for victory, just on pure, pure pace. So, now know we're getting into the month of May. Indy 500 is a place they did okay at last year, so maybe those fortunes will change. But uh, I thought we would have seen more by now. And the fact that we haven't is slightly concerning. Uh, if we're talking about a real proper championship scrap. Marcus Erickson, though, that's the last one I'll, I'll just close on here on this topic, and that is uh, did we have Erickson as the pretty clear leader of Ganassi in terms of consistent results? Not necessarily, <laughs> right? I know that things didn't go great for him at Barber, just a poor qualifying and, you know, made up couple of positions, but he was never really in the mix. This is the first time that's been, uh, it's really been that way. But yeah, uh, I thought Pelot was going to just come out guns a-blazing this year, knowing that he's got, you know, this is his final year with the team, um, nothing to lose, and I'm not saying he's been driving in a way that uh, has kept him from being dominant there, but um, that has surprised me a little bit. Uh, Dixon, I think, has been doing very well, but again, I'm I'm looking for that, whoa, be scared of Chip Ganassi racing in terms of outright speed on race day. Still waiting for that. Uh, So, and there's a bunch of others, so I'll try and fart as many of those into my uh, little racer column here. Uh, Nothing hates you. Uh says his daily seat getting hot, asking how secure is Connor Daly at Ed Carpenter Racing. You say the Bit funding seems pretty tied to Connor. Um it's a hundred percent tied to Connor. Uh so yeah. Um Connor is air quote rumored to have been asking if there are any other teams that might like to have Bit on their car and his name on those cars as well. And again, rumor. I haven't spoke with Connor about it, so I can't tell you that I know this to be fact from his side, at least. Um, but, yeah. I would hope BitNile would stay with him. Um, we've seen Marina's be competitive this past weekend. I don't know if we've seen the team be truly competitive anywhere this year. right? They've had flashes, but... Uh, Again, uh, I'm less concerned about, hey, you had a great free practice, too, uh, and more about what did you do when they were handing out points. Um, Yeah. uh, I hope Bittenau sticks with him. And that whether it's where he's at or at another team, um, he and they are able to just get more because... One thing we know for sure in motor racing, awesome sponsors are awesome when things are going well and when they aren't, they might still be awesome, but they often then decide to go be with other people who are awesome in terms of the results that they produce. And so, yeah, when you are a driver who brings the budget and you have a sponsor who... Loves you, but also wants and needs something uh, from your results, whether it's you or the team or whomever. I mean, this story always ends the same exact way. They either leave altogether or go to someone else. So, yeah, I'm hoping he gets and they get what they need um, because, yeah. Can't afford to not have him in the series. Lance Snyder, you're asking, uh, is Ray Hall Edmund Lanigan running too many cars? Noting that Christian Lingard was an absolute stud muffin. Look at that. We're using phrases from the 80s. I love it. That's a tubular reference, my minister of mirth, Mr. Snyder. Um, yeah. Uh,. No, they're not running too many cars. I mean, three is is the right size these days for an IndyCar team. Uh, They have some things to figure out on the engineering side. Um, Save this for another day, but a long conversation with a friend uh, about this called, I think, I don't remember, Thursday night, wanting to talk about this uh, in depth, and we did so And I think I see the problems that they have. Um, I suggested a solution that they might consider short-term-ish. And we'll see if that's a direction that they go. But, yeah. I think I've used this before, but it was just a couple of years ago where the Los Angeles Lakers went out and seemingly hired every big name possible. And they sucked. And it wasn't because they lacked talent. It's because you had a bunch of folks who didn't figure out how to get the best out of each other. And it showed on the track. So, does this engineering group have the super extra clarity and unity and direction and all the right experience and all the right places, all the things that you would need to be a ass-kicking, cohesive unit? uh well rounded unit i yeah i i don't know uh but i mean graham ray hall um i I wouldn't put this on Graham in any way shape or form i know he's it's easy to because he's not particularly liked by however many people, but yeah, I wouldn't put this on him uh ta-ta, where are we gonna go here We'll take let me just see two more, yeah, actually, I think we only have two more um Eric Franklin, appreciate your question. Maybe send that in next week uh, since, yeah, we've got a little bit of time until uh, we get to our next race. Um, I'm going to clo- Let's see. Darren King, you'll be our penultimate questionnaire. You say, MP, what are engine manufacturers allowed to change year to year? So we've had the same formula for some time now, and I was wondering what there is left to change. Um, I don't know, and that's just because I haven't checked in Lately to find out. So there's a bit of a two part answer to this question, and that is for the first many years of the formula, it was basically a one year on, one year off homologation plan that they had. And I'm just, you know, trying to pull this up from memory, but in twenty twelve, which was the first year of the new formula, it was basically almost nothing, right? Um I think it was Every two years they said you could change you could come up with a new uh head design, come up with new heads, but had to fit in the same exact silhouette, same shape of the previous heads. So if you wanted to change something within that exact <laughs> design space, you could. Uh, but you could not go out and truly just make brand new heads of whatever size and dimensions you want. Um Pistons Uh, camshaft uh, there's some of the bigger ticket items uh crankshaft where i believe those were kind of the longer every couple years but every year you know it was more of the smaller things like hey if you want to do new exhaust configuration you could do that um turbo plenums i think were every couple of years so Kind of the 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 bigger, more expensive, longer lead time items were the ones where they said nope, we're not going to let you do that every year. The smaller things, um, those were the items that they allowed to be redesigned, uh, updated on a more frequent basis. So um, what I don't know is exactly where things are at now, and so. This is just because we've been in a bit of a weird engine place for a couple of years and only just recently got clarity on what they're doing. So there was the announcement of, hey, we're going to this new, brand new design 2.4 liter and it's coming in a couple of years. So, hey, Chevy and Honda, we're going to agree to dial back uh, on the uh, development arms race because we're going to a new motor here in a couple of years. It's going to cost a lot. So Let's not spend ourselves into oblivion over the last few years of this 2.2 liter formula that's going away. And so again, there's this, this agreement of, okay, well, then we're not going to be doing major the major items allowed in homologation. We're going to agree that we're not going to do those things. So just really tone things down in terms of development and costs. And now, and this is a part that I need to check back on, we have said, hey, so we're not doing the 2.4. We're sticking with the 2.2s. Um, what have they agreed to? Have they fully agreed to on what that future development roadmap uh, is or is going to be? I know when I asked about this in, I think, December, when the we're ditching the 2.4s and staying with the 2.2s was announced, that was one of the questions I asked. So, okay, well... I guess you're unfreezing the freeze, so what are you doing? Are you just going back to the old, every two years you could do this, and every other year you could do that, and blah, 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 or are you going to do something new, and you know what do you think? And I was told at that time, we're still figuring that part out. Um, Admittedly, I'm probably a month or two late in going back and saying, all right, what'd you come up with, but... Uh, I'll make a note here to do that and hopefully have uh, an answer for you, Darren, in the form of a story or video on racer.com. dot com. going to close the show with our pal, Maddie McDonald. Good to hear from you, Maddie. This is a long time since I asked a question, but I have been listening. Well, I knew it. I could tell, by the way. I could tell. Um, so I want to thank you for consistently using inclusive, gender-neutral language throughout your podcasts and interviews. I try, Maddie. I genuinely do, and I thank you for some of the education you have provided for me, genuinely. Uh, I say, anyway, cars allowing a much wider range of rear-wing angles for the Indy 500. My question is, why? Was this ever limited? How'd they choose the new limits? You say, wouldn't the drag penalty for cranking too much rear-wing? Prevent anyone from going too far? Why not just let the engineers do their thing with the full range of adjustments? Love questions like this, Maddie. I think the answer, and uh, I'm sure I'll be corrected by our friend, uh, IndyCar Director of Aerodynamic Development, uh, and just supreme race car designer, Tino Belly. I'm sure he'll send me notes saying, Pruitt, you idiot. Got it totally wrong if I did. Uh, but... I think the answer here is the overarching fear of pack racing. Uh, Concern has been expressed for a long time through many aerodynamic iterations of the DW-12 that we don't want to go back to the old days of oval pack racing where everybody's just glued to each other, on top of each other. And yeah, you can pass. There's lots of passing, but rarely any breaking away and so it's just this big rolling cluster of a hundred wheels and danger is ever present that tends to come from a if we're over down forced well then everybody has tons of grip cars aren't really falling off performance wise the tires are not sliding and and whatnot and and graining and, and losing traction because you've got so much aerodynamic help that, you know, cars just glued. And so, therefore, there's no real separation because tires aren't falling off. And you also have more drivers who might not be oval experts, but they have enough downforce to where it sure looks like it because, granted, they're maybe not passing everybody and running away, but they're also not falling back. And so I think it's that general thing, Maddie, that has driven the, all right, yeah, we're, we're going to add a little downforce here, there. We're going to open up rear wing angle, for example, and we're talking something that's really only going to get used in the race. But I think the over overall fear has been, let's not go too wild on downforce because we're just going to create crazy pack racing. And so that's why I think they've inched towards where they are now. And that inching towards as well is something where we saw at Texas, that downforce addition was hailed by everybody as great, just enough to give everybody the confidence and ability to pass without it being over the edge where it was like, okay, uh, we got way too much downforce, and yeah, we're just kind of along for the ride. We as drivers are not really making the difference here in getting by one another. That's why I think we've had, you know, th- this more careful approach taken incrementally year by year at Indy, right? It's a biggest show. You don't want to make a huge change. Or I could understand why you would not want to make a huge downforce change and then say, well, okay, the race was terrible. Um, but we have heard from enough drivers who said, you know, at Indy, we, we would love the ability to run a little bit more downforce. We think it would improve the show, uh, make it easy, uh, easy, but a little bit easier for us to try and pass, maybe you know, keep the tires under us for a little bit longer and just maybe make for a little bit better of a show. Um, they have an additional four degrees of rear wing they could crank in, but IndyCar has said, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're going from a maximum of two degrees, that's positive. Uh, Rear wing angle to five for this year. And, yeah, Tino told me that you could go as high as eight. Has the ability to get cranked up to as high as uh, nine, I should say. But, um, yeah, I'm good, Matty, with them saying, all right, we've given you the option to use more. We're letting you use more, but we're not giving you everything at once because it is a really big number of how much rear downforce you could bolt on. Plus, maybe the the key answer to this, I don't know if there's enough downforce that could be bolted on up front or cranked in up front through the front wing and with all the extensions and, and whatnot to the front wing. I don't know if there is enough... Teams could you could add up front to balance going as high as nine degrees of of positive or wing at the rear. So I like the idea of hey let's do this in stages. Let's make sure we don't go wacky with a giant burst of down, new downforce at the rear of the car and potentially you know uh, put on a, a stinker of a race. But I also do not think that there's enough front downforce that could be added to balance all nine degrees of rear wing. So that's probably uh, the heart of the answer right there, on top of any, I would say, uh, justified conservatism in how they introduce stuff. So that's all we got for you this week. Thank you for listening in. Try and remember, I'm trying to do a couple more podcasts, IndyCar-related, Junior Open Wheel-related podcasts this week. On those, I'll uh, try and remember to uh, invite more folks to join the Pruday listener group, uh, which you can do at prudayrocks at gmail.com. Try and remember to do that at the opening of the show. Uh, It's been really cool seeing how this has developed. And there's uh, at least one or two Pruday-related meetups and activities here coming at Indy during the month of May so, and there might even be three I don't know but uh, we're going to be having a lot of Pruday fun racing family fun in and around the speedway here so um, send that uh, little urge to join there a little bit more and uh, one or two other podcasts coming up this week I am Marshall Pruitt thank you again for listening here on our show brought to you by Cooper Tires the Justice Brothers Discount Tire and Toronto Motorsports Boop, <laughs> boop,